Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The Bowery Boys episode 159, The Broadway Musical. Setting the stage. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code BOWERY. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Welcome to the Bowery Boys Holiday Show for 2013. And it seems like Christmas came early to us here at the Bowery Boys, Greg. We've got a lot of new presents under the tree. We have brand new artwork decorating our podcast now, wherever um, you're probably looking at it right now on whatever device you're listening to. And you also might have noticed a new sponsor. But that doesn't mean that Eurocheapo has gone away. Uh, Oh, no. Eurocheapo is still here. And literally... Right here. Um, And we still have um, hotels in New York City. But the Bowery Boys also have a new sponsor that we're very excited about. You'll hear a little bit more about Squarespace later in our show. Greg, 86 years ago, 86 years ago, Mm -hmm. this month, on December 27th, 1927, crowds gathered at the Ziegfeld Theater for the opening of a new musical that would change the world of musical theater. That musical was called Showboat. Why is Showboat such an important musical in the canon here of American musicals? That's what we're basically going to tell the story of in tonight's show. We're going to talk about what the musical scene was, because it was quite a bit different from that show that took the stage on December 27th, 1927. In this show, we're going to talk about the musical entertainments of the 19th and early 20th century leading up to this very pivotal moment. We are proud to present the origin of one of New York's greatest commodities, the modern Broadway musical. So take this opportunity to unwrap your candies now and please put your cell phones on silent as we set the stage for the Broadway musical. Okay, Greg, well, 
you know, I'm really excited to get started with this show. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a quick question for you, some housekeeping here. <laughs> How are we going to do this show? It's a big subject. It's a place. And it's a genre. And it's a lot of other things, as, as we will discuss. But I'm going to give you the ultimate situate the listener. Because we're going to talk about the Broadway musical. But why is it the Broadway musical? Why isn't it the Bowery musical? Why isn't it the Fifth Avenue musical? You know, okay. why isn't it the Central Park musical? You know, I would like to posit a theory here that the musical was actually destined to be created in this area of Midtown. Part of this has to do with where Broadway is in relation, of course, to the entire island of Manhattan, which is, of course, a very narrow island. Broadway begins in Bowling Green, the southern tip of the island goes up pretty much in a straight line until it gets Mm -hmm. to around 10th Street and then shoots diagonally through Midtown up to 79th Street where it kind of realigns again with the grid and then a little further up it curves about. But for the most part, you know, it's a street that was certainly not in the original plan of New York. The actual path of Broadway traces back to the Native American days and the lower half of it was the main thoroughfare in Dutch New Amsterdam where they called it De Heerenstraat or the Gentleman's Street, or Breedweg, which was Anglicanized, of course, to be Broadway Street. Your Dutch is getting so much better, Greg. (laughs) Thank you. In the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, Broadway was not meant to be part of this, you know, elaborate lattice of of avenues and roads. And with the grid plan, they wanted to knock out these irregular streets. Oh, yeah. That was the defining reason for the plan. However, it made practical sense a few decades later to sort of lock Broadway into that grid. And so they attached the lower half of Broadway with an upper part, which was Bloomingdale Road. So they attached those two together with that diagonal. Gotcha. And then it was at the major intersections like 23rd, 34th, 42nd, 57th that we would have these sort of collisions with avenues and thus have these big spaces. And as we've talked before, that is very ideal to have public entertainments there because there's more places for people to gather. Uh, Transportation is easier to catch in those places. Now, New York's very first theaters, of course, well, They obviously gravitated towards the center of the island. Like, for instance, there were no theaters along the waterfront. Now, the first theaters were around, of course, City Hall. But in the beginning of the 18th century, theaters did, in fact, move north. But it wasn't a certainty back then that Broadway would be the ultimate destination. In fact, in the early 19th century, some of the best theaters were actually over there on the Bowery. The Bowery Theater, for instance, at 46 Bowery, was built in 1826 and is near today's foot of the Manhattan Bridge. Now, had things stayed static in New York, we would, in fact, call it the Bowery Musical. But what happened with, oh. uh, with the waves of immigration in the 1840s, the Bowery began to be associated, of course, with lower-class people, but also with ethnic groups. And for decades afterwards, the Bowery and then the East Village would then be the place for ethnic theater. In particular, Second Avenue would be the home of a vibrant Jewish theater scene, the Yiddish Theater District. Would and, be that there. Would, and that would be throughout the 19th century. Throughout the 19th century and early 20th century. So that would be parallel. It would be an alternative theater scene. But that leaves Broadway, of course, as the spine of mainstream high culture. And, of course, as this whole city moved north, it would be closer to the homes and businesses of the wealthy. Theaters would go up Broadway and, of course, would be centered around a lot of these plazas. So Union Square and Madison Square and Herald Square. But for today's show and today 
when you come to New York and you want to see a show, most likely it will be around Times Square and most likely will also be near 42nd Street. If you're seeing a Broadway show. If you're seeing a Broadway show. So I get the Broadway part, but what about 42nd Street? Why were these shows all around that particular street? Well, there's there are two 19th century reasons that leading up to the importance of 42nd Street. One of them goes back to the grid plan. If you remember, they made some cross streets wider than others so that it could accommodate crosstown traffic. Right. 14th Street, 23rd Street, 34th Street, and 42nd Street would also be one of these. However, back in the mid-19th century, the city hadn't really developed all the way up to 42nd Street. So in 1857, when they had you know, back in the day when they actually had trains pulling in, you know, downtown and it was very disgusting and very dangerous. They banished all the trains up to 42nd Street would be their terminus. And that is, in fact, where the Grand Central Depot, mm-hmm. today's Grand Central Terminal, would be built. So because of that and because of the particular time that it was built, 42nd Street became this sort of frontier, a frontier, if you will. But then the city then grew so fast that it grew up to 42nd Street. So thus a lot of prominence was put on this particular cross street, so much so that when the subway was built in 1904, that subway stop, 42nd and Broadway... Which had been Longacre Square. Which had been Longacre Square. In 1904, the subway station was built there and drew thousands of people. It soon was the heart of the city. And then, of course, when they built a tall tower on top of it for the New York Times, they decided to call the whole neighborhood Times Square. And so all of a sudden you had a place where thousands of people could get to very easily a gigantic plaza for hotels and restaurants to move to and and draw people to and very very conveniently down south crawling up broadway was new york's theater scene so that is how the whole industry the musical industry got to this particular area but that's just that's very geographic. You can fold your maps back in your pocket now. I think that we need to retrace our steps here because I'm just telling you sort of where the theaters were. But what kinds of shows, what kind of musical shows in particular, were working their way up Broadway here? Well, music itself had been an important part of New York's theater scene. But in terms of actual musical productions, in the 19th century, these shows were limited mostly to opera and operetta shows, vaudeville and burlesque shows, and minstrel shows. So in essence, the three forms of music that people would go to the theater and enjoy in the early and mid-19th century were the opera. Right, and specifically we're going to talk about light operas, the operettas, where you could usually find um, a show about a beautiful maiden and heroic prince They were usually lighter operas that incorporated some moral tale and usually quite melodramatic and some would say overacted. And they were also in English because many of the proper operas actually were not. Right. A lot of these had very far-fetched plots, right? Um, Stiff wooden characters. And taking place in far-off lands. But those comic musicals were here in New York. Mm -hmm. Those were one major form. And you said vaudeville. Right, which we've talked about in other shows, especially Tin Pan Alley. It was basically a big variety show, a series of individual acts that would be performed one after the other on stage with a little easel propped up in the side announcing the next act. These could include singers, dancers, 
comedians, acrobats, even even animal acts. Oh yeah! In fact, a couple months ago on the blog, I, I wrote a story on a a vaudeville star who was a talking dog. Really? Yeah. And he, what, he, what did he say? Well, he spoke seven words in German. What's amazing to me is that like oh, paying Wiedersehen. <laughs> Paying people would come in to hear our Wiedersehen live. I mean, anyway, it could be anything. Yeah, well, this is a great era. I mean, I would have paid to go see a talking dog. <laughs> sure, Speaking sure. German. But you get it with like eight or nine different acts. I mean, it would be oh, a variety. More, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and a couple shows a day, and they'd have whole families um, performing together. So opera and operettas, we have the vaudeville. Mm-hmm. And did you say minstrel shows? Right, yes. which is always a difficult subject for us. It's hard for us to imagine today, but it was an extremely popular form of entertainment from the 1840s through, let's say, the late 1800s. These shows portrayed African Americans as silly, as buffoonish, and as also very musical. There were almost always, at the beginning, these would be white performers performing in blackface. After the Civil War, there were black performers who would also perform in blackface. Because it would become an opportunity to have an audience and to become a musical star yourself. So a lot of African-American singers took the plunge and, yes, entered the minstrel shows themselves. And this would still be around in some form in the 1910s and 20s, which we'll, we'll get to here in a second. That's less than a century ago. It's kind of hard to believe. And additionally, then, we would have the music hall scene downtown, some things happening over on 2nd Avenue in the mm-hmm. Lower East Side, East Village, But those are the main forms of popular musical entertainment happening in the city. Now, I I think that we'll need to save vaudeville and and minstrel shows for another podcast to dig more into them because those are fascinating subjects about American culture. But I'm going to look here into the mid to late 19th century about what the hot musical comedy shows of this era, the operettas and the various reviews. So basically, if you were in the Gilded Age and you lived in New York City, what kind of musical shows were you going out to see? But if I think Gilded Age, I also think of Vanderbilt's and and Astor's going for a night of music. So at the high end, you also, we should add, have opera. Right, right. We're not going to talk about respectable opera, but some of these, <laughs> show, some of these shows would... Some people might take issue with that, Craig. <laughs> but some of these shows that I'm about to talk about would become very popular and would, you know, would draw audiences and stay open for months and months and months, but they wouldn't necessarily be you know, with the upper crust... Right. goes to, to mingle, essentially. So we're going to go back downtown to Broadway and Prince to a place that I have devoted an entire Bowery Boys podcast on. Um, Namely? Niblo's Garden. Ah, yes. So I'm not going to get into the, the whole details of Niblo's, but it's, it's one of the most popular stages in New York of the 1850s and 60s. It derived from an old pleasure garden, which is a precursor to a city park, which would be a privately owned land with trimmed hedges and all sorts of a variety of different activities and fireworks and things. But you would pay to enter. You would pay to enter this. But eventually the garden part would be repurposed for a swanky hotel and then it had a small theater on site and it would be expanded to become one of the greatest theaters of New York City. It hosted every type of top-tier event. The official premiere of uh, Verdi's opera, Macbeth, was here at uh, Niblo's Garden. Which sounds very highbrow. Yes, but what I'm about to talk about is not highbrow. In 1866, a most unusual show, which some called the very first musical, it's, it's a very primitive form, a show called The Black Crook. 
It arrived here at Niblo's almost by accident. What happened in 1866 is there was a Parisian ballet troupe that was in town to New York, and they were going to perform at the Academy of Music. But unfortunately, the Academy of Music burnt down, and the impresario here at Niblo's was putting together a show um, based on a script and some music that he had and decided to incorporate the ballet troupe into a musical spectacle. Sounds interesting. So what was the show about? Well, first of all, it was about five and a half hours, (laughs) which is insane. I mean, these shows were not very tightly wound in the way that shows are today. The plot itself was malarkey, complete utter nonsense. I describe it a little bit in the old podcast, but in in essence, it had characters with such names as Count Wolfenstein, Zamiel, the Arch Fiend, and Stalacta, the Fairy Queen of the Golden Realm. Now, these sound like really far-fetched characters. Is the Black Crook considered an operetta, or is this something else? It was a, it was a weird mishmash of things. It was a mixture of dancing ladies, mm-hmm. um, a very melodramatic, stiff story that would have been taken from an opera. It had that sort of intention. It had fabulous sets and this epic quality to it that shows up to this time just didn't have and it's those influences i think that people look back on this show and see the modern musical in those aspects of the black crook now speaking of epic shows here perhaps no name is more associated with musical theater in the 19th century than w.s gilbert and arthur sullivan Ah, gilbert Gilbert and and sullivan Sullivan. yes but I happen to know that these gentlemen are not at all New Yorkers. They oh, never no, were. No, no, no. They were both born and raised in London. Gilbert and Sullivan, of course, are responsible for a sophistication in storytelling. Their, um, their shows were a great mix of music and story, unlike anything that had come before. And so, again, this is another ingredient that's going to go into the modern musical. They, of course, debuted their shows in Europe, but arrived in New York in a most intriguing fashion and in unauthorized fashion. Sounds very theatrical, do tell. So in 1878, in in Europe, uh, they debuted their classic show, the HMS Pinafore, right. which is this cheesy love story aboard a British vessel. It's still performed today. Oh, it's absolutely. Loving. Captain's daughter and a sailor. This was created over a decade before the creation of international copyright law. That was enacted in 1891, which protected foreign works when they arrived in the United States and, mm-hmm. and so that the, the writers and creators would get royalties. So, of course, we didn't have that law yet. So when this show was such a huge hit in Europe, when it leaked over to the United States, there were literally dozens of cheapened, bastardized versions of the HMS Pinafore, several shows going on all at once in New York City, and and such a diversity of pinafores. You had minstrel versions, you had camped up drag versions where it would be all what? male cast i i found the city was crazy <laughs> for pinafores it's a craze it's a total craze there were many theaters like up and down broadway with competing pinafores i looked in a newspaper in 1879 in june and over on 24th and broadway it was advertised as the ideal version 
of Pinafore. But then two ads down from this in the newspaper, I saw another Pinafore. It was the, quote, standard version next to another advertisement that was an all-children's version of Pinafore. (laughs) So then the punchline here is that by the time the show officially came over, by the time that Gilbert and Sullivan actually crossed the Atlantic and brought an official production, everyone had already kind of seen it. Uh, HMS Pinna before. <laughs> but even still, they, they decided to take the real show on the, on the road. Yeah, so they brought that and it debuted the official version at the Fifth Avenue Theater at 28th Street and Broadway. It actually was the very first air-conditioned theater in the world. They had gigantic fans that blew air over gigantic blocks of ice. But none of that was needed on December 1st of 1879 when Pinafore debuted. But of course, the audiences, no audiences were coming, so... They had to replace the show by the end of the month. So luckily... Because it had just... Everybody was sick of Pinafore? Everyone was already sick of Pinafore. But luckily for them, they had already been working on a new show. It's the only Gilbert and Sullivan show to make a premiere in America. This particular show, which they debuted at the end of the month. So it opened with Pinafore. Pinafore closed. And they opened in December 31st with The Pirates of Penzance. Which is a huge Gilbert and Sullivan show. Was that written in New York? So some of it was. It was a show that was written in London, but when they brought it over, Sullivan realized that he had left whole pages of music back in London. So they had to hastily redraft and recreate here at the Fifth Avenue Theater um, what became today's Pirates of Penzance. Well, that's incredible that this show, which is one of the most important shows in in 19th century musical... Was hastily stitched together. In New York. (laughs) Yes. By its composers. Incredible. A few years later, a third Gilbert and Sullivan show would also debut here, The Mikado. Right. Would also date the the same stage. So the Fifth Avenue Theater is very important into the history of musical theater in the 19th century. Right there at... 28th and Broadway, mm-hmm. which I think we've talked about 28th and Broadway, 28th and 6th. Well, so around this period of time would move in some of the first song publishers around this area to create a district that would be called Tin Pan Alley. In fact, a street, 28th mm-hmm. Street, that would be Tin Pan Alley. Which was a collection of music publishers here that would basically service all of the, the musical productions in New York, as well as all the nightclubs and everything. So it was a bustling street where thousands of songs were produced. One of the biggest songs uh, that was produced in the 1880s here was a song called After the Ball, which ended up selling over two million copies. It was one of the best-selling songs of the late 19th century. And indeed, this song would make its stage debut because so many of the songs would. They would be written there on Tin Pan Alley and then rushed onto a stage. Now, After the Ball debuted in a show in 1891 called A Trip to Chinatown. Debuted at the Madison Square Theater at 24th and Broadway, so literally 
four blocks down from where it was created. And so is a trip to Chinatown, is that an operetta, or is that some sort of vaudeville show? Well, it's or? a little bit of a, a variety show, if you will. There was a loose plot, a totally ridiculous plot, which meandered, and several points during the show it forgot about entirely. <laughs> it was set in San Francisco's Chinatown, including one strange aside by a gentleman who then breaks the show and sings another huge song from this, which was called The Bowery. That kind of treatment of music would be prevalent throughout the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So that's not really that unusual for this show, that it would be completely irrelevant. So, But I want to talk about one final important Broadway theater here where a lot was going on during this period and that's the Casino Theater mm-hmm. at 39th and Broadway so on the other side of Herald Square here which was in 1882 as you can surmise maybe from my addresses and dates the theaters are in fact like moving northward here right. another interesting show debuted in 1894 called The Passing Show a topical extravaganza which sounds like something you put on a rash the topical <laughs> extravaganza which is what they call it back then. Later, they would call it a review. Uh-huh. And this would be the first show that would use the word review as a descriptor of what it was. They, they of course, called it review, R-E-V-I-E-W, because oh. it was literally reviewed. It was a topical, you know, I had like... It was a about, review of situations like a, that were it's like, yeah, it's in like, the news. It's kind of like The Daily Show, but right. like on song and dance. Um, Which was a good idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. With They would have up to 100 people on stage dancing and singing at you. Sounds expensive. The following year at the casino would be the debut of a composer named Victor Herbert, who would be a leader of these comic operettas. His show in 1895 was called The Wizard of the Nile. One final show, then I'll close the casino here. On July 4th, 1898, the rooftop garden here debuted the very first all-black cast. So, Actual African-American singers and dancers here would perform in a show called Clorindy, The Mm -hmm. Origin of the Cakewalk, by Will Marion Cook and Paul Dunbar. Many offensive songs and bad stereotypes meant to appease and make the white audiences feel comfortable with, with having black entertainers in front of them curious about this production is because it was the summertime on the rooftop and be quite loud during the summer because things are really cooking and hot here Mm -hmm. in Broadway. They actually deleted all the dialogue. So it became literally almost an all music show. So so essentially, it's the first music review by the first black composer, uh, Will Marion Cook. And you say that was performed on the rooftop, and there were plenty of theaters that had these rooftop gardens and mm-hmm. rooftop. They had separate shows happening in the theater downstairs, and then afterwards, you could get drinks on the rooftop mm-hmm. or dinner and see another show. The casino's down on 39th Street. Mm-hmm. For the rest of our show, most of the action is going to be taking place north of here. That's true. So in 1900, we had 70 productions that were plays or musicals, plus seven vaudeville and six burlesque theaters operating. Most of these were around Broadway. Yes. Okay. Tickets for the best seats in the house would be about $1.50 or $2, which would run about $40 to $55 in today's money. Toward the end of the 19th century, shows had started to go on the road. So they would, you know, make a big splash in New York, and then they'd head out on a circuit of performances around the country. But because of this, they need to have, like, a business infrastructure right. behind them. Because it was it was expensive to get the, the shows and also the stars to show up in Cleveland and Detroit or whatever. They wanted it to be very efficient. So theater owners and producers came together, and they formed something called the Syndicate. 
syndicate, and it was led by Abraham Lincoln Erlinger, who was a powerful talent booker from the South. They were the head of the Claw and Erlinger syndicate. They owned, among other things, the new Amsterdam Theater right there at 42nd Street and Broadway, which was the home to Ziegfeld and had a great, fabulous rooftop garden of its own. If you were a New York show uh, and you wanted to play in Milwaukee or in Madison or in San Francisco or Cleveland, you had to play by the rules of the Klon Erlinger syndicate. You had to take their rates. They set the ticket prices. They had a monopoly. So there were a lot of people who weren't into this, including other theater owners who didn't want to participate in this particular scheme. A trio of brothers, the Schuberts from upstate New York, took on the syndicate and they they developed their own chain of independent theaters. Ironically, they would ultimately win out against the syndicate. There are still Schubert theaters mm-hmm. around the country, but you don't hear anymore about the Claw and Erlinger uh, no. syndicate. That's true. But the whole world of the musical that's mm-hmm. about to arrive here, this is the context. It's like this big war between these right. two uh, and, warring theater organizations. And people were participating. Like I said, Ziegfeld you know, was one of the syndicate theaters. So let's just choose a couple of shows to see, shall we, from the first decade of the 20th century? So if I'm walking walking down 42nd Street and I'm seeing the construction of the subway because it's not built yet. Let's start actually at the Casino Theater, Mm -hmm. a theater you already mentioned, at 39th and Broadway in 1900 for the opening of Florodora, which was a, a romance that was set on the islands in the Philippines. It is important as being one of the first musical hits on Broadway. Uh, what qualifies a hit back in this day? So how many performances? Well, in this or? case, 553. One of the actresses in Florodora was Evelyn Nesbitt. She was a 16-year-old Florodora girl mm-hmm. uh, whose jealous husband would end up murdering the man with whom she was having an affair, a certain architect named Stanford mm-hmm. White. So Floridora, mm-hmm. down, down at the casino, right. um, very hot stage at this time. But if we walk north, what other sh- delights might we see here? Well, as you said, the Broadway Theater District stretched way up north to Columbus Circle. So let's go all the way up to the Majestic Theater, mm-hmm. uh, where on October 13th, 1903, the operetta Babes in Toyland opened, which was one of Victor Herbert's operettas. Herbert, who you have m- mentioned. What's, what I think is funny about Babes in Toyland is that it was produced the same year as The Wizard of Oz, which mm-hmm. was a musical and which was a huge hit. It was also in Columbus Circle. In the same theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was the same theater. I really? Think so, right, yeah. And so they produced this show that it, it combined Mother Goose characters with a Christmas setting. It was totally conceived as kind of a knockoff to The Wizard of Oz and a <laughs> huge crowd pleaser. Herbert would go on to produce a new operetta every Every year until 1924, he was that prolific. Mm-hmm. The next year, however, 1904, would give us something that I think is even more important in musical theater history. But first, we'll pause for a quick commercial break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. And now, back to our show. And there we have, of course, give my regards to Broadway, which is doubly appropriate in its context right now, not just because we're talking about the Broadway musical, but because I'm taking us in 1904 to the show Little Johnny Jones, which was the first big hit of George M. Cohen, and it was in this show at the Liberty Theater on West 42nd Street that Give My Regards to Broadway debuted along with the other showstopper, Yankee Doodle Boy. So a, a huge star now in the, in the Broadway universe has debuted here, George M. Cohen. Right, a wise, cracking, energetic Irish-American. He was He's the ultimate song and dance man. He could write shows, he could compose music, he directed, he produced, he owned a theater by the end of his life. He, he quote, ruled Broadway for well, he, nearly 20 years. Well, he's so associated with Broadway that there's an actual statue of him in the middle of Times right. Square. Indeed he does, right by the TKTS booth. <laughs> Will you buy your Broadway tickets today? Right, half off. What was it like to see a Cohen show? So I'm trying to, to picture, is it more vaudeville? But it's well, also musical comedy because we're, we're putting him in this show. So I'm assuming his, the things that he contributes would right. lead to the modern musical. Well, like Little Johnny Jones, most of his musicals or most of the plots uh, are largely forgettable, kind of mm-hmm. fluffy, silly old shows that gave him an excuse to use his songs and as many pretty girls as possible as possible his character that he would play would be highly energetic he would be like high kicking across the stage right the same kind of like high kicking brash personality that we associate today with like a really razzmatazz broadway character Mm -hmm. was originated by george m cohen he he kind of created this ideal of this sort of over-the-top energetic pushy performer That came from Cohen. They mixed a sort of patriotism with a certain optimism. And this became defining features of not just Broadway songs, but Broadway shows. He inspired millions of future stage children in their own (laughs) musicals with great enthusiasm. He deserves that statue Uh of Times Square. Now, jumping ahead a few years to 1911... We could bear witness for the first time in a show to the hit song Alexander's Ragtime Band. 
by Irving Berlin. So we have Irving Berlin finally on the scene. The most important. Am I being a little crazy? Am I saying well, the most important songwriter of the 20th of century? The most important and prolific. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's estimated that he wrote 1,500 songs in his very long and prestigious career. And also managed, I guess, with this song, obviously given the title, he incorporated so the popular music styles of the day into a stage number. So at an early age, uh, Irving Berlin would have to go to work and he got a job as a singing waiter in a saloon on the Bowery. So he had a quick sense of what was popular with audiences when he started plugging songs at Tony Pastor's Music Hall on Union Square Mm -hmm. and then joined Tin Pan Alley in 1909 writing songs, and he had a real knack for it. He was still really young when Alexander's Ragtime Band came out. It was a huge hit. But, of course, you know, throughout the next three or four decades, he would continue to crank out classic music. So it just starts right here. From White Broadway. Christmas, There's No Business Like Show Business, God Bless America. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote 19 Broadway shows, 19, and then countless other songs. Mm-hmm. So he was an incredible force. So you said that was 1911. What's interesting about the decade, so one century ago, the decade of the 1910s, is it was the most expansive in the history of New York entertainment. More stages opened in that decade than in any other and would ever, producing hundreds of shows a year. As we said, it was a great period if you loved going to the theater because shows were cheap and you had dozens and dozens to choose from thanks to the theatrical rivalry that was generating all of these new shows and new stages. I do want to turn my attention, we've been on these big stages, but there were smaller stages right off Broadway, and one in particular I wanted to spend a few moments with, and that's the Princess Theater, which is 39th Street and 6th Avenue. So today it has less than 300 seats, it would be considered off-Broadway today, almost, off-off-Broadway. But it was here that a very significant songwriter would make his debut, a man named Jerome Kern. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would be 30 years old in 1915 when he started here at the, at the Princess. He was born in New York, um, in Sutton Place. Did you know that? I didn't. Mr. Kern here will figure into our grand finale of our show, not to spoil anything, but he would start off his career actually writing for British musicals, like gussing them up with American-style songs. And so for his shows here at the Princess, he teamed up with someone who I, I didn't even I was stunned to see this name pop out at me in research. Um, for many of his shows, he used as a lyricist a writer named Petey Wodehouse. Oh yes, well he was obviously the novelist famous for the Jeeves mm-hmm, novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean he was the like, the original Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> So Wodehouse and Kern made these quaint little musicals here at the Princess that were incredibly influential, um, but with very funny names like Oh Boy. And Oh Lady Lady and Leave It to Jane are three of the big shows, all involving elopements, comic mix-ups, very Three's Company-ish, if you will. Um, (laughs) They sound great. 
So aside from these comedic complications, were these um, musicals notable for anything else? They were, f- number one, because they were kind of faster paced. They had a little bit more of a sense of dramatic narrative and pushing the story forward. But also their presentation, because it was just a smaller stage mm-hmm. and they didn't have as much money. So they would be commonplace environments. I would call it the fabulous ordinary, mm-hmm. where songs and situations were about normal people who were dressed down, plain clothed. You know, they wouldn't be in these fine, fancy frocks um, that would populate the shows of the late 19th century. The most popular show during the 1910s and for many years, of course, would be the Ziegfeld Follies. Florin Ziegfeld would almost monopolize this particular form of entertainment that would be reviews of various songs, dancing girls with elaborate costumes or, of course, no costumes and very risque, very sizzling kind of show. Well, it was very glamorous and it wasn't just the girls. He had all the best looking six foot tall women in the city. The women would certainly be perhaps the most important to these shows, but he would have, of course, a lot of the big vaudeville stars that he would import into these right. shows. Yes. Or a comedian would come out, and a famous comedian, do, do a number followed by perhaps a tap dance routine. Mm-hmm. And I love how the ladies would come out, too, because it was very classy. They'd mm-hmm. wear these giant, towering headdresses and hold their arms just so on both sides as they sort of glided around the stage. So it's the opposite of what's going on with the princess, which is these very small, intimate, very close-to-home type of shows. These in the Ziegfeld Follies and, of course, his Midnight Frolics, which would be the sort of like rooftop garden, more adult-themed kind of shows, um, they would be super exotic, big-budget, gigantic production numbers and just loaded with top-tier talent. And these would be at the New Amsterdam Theater? They would be at the New Amsterdam and at the Folie Berger Theater, also on Broadway. What's interesting about these follies is that they would be the predominant form of musical stage entertainment here, but would inspire tons of different kinds of knockoffs, vanities. You remember I said the passing show, which had been debuted down at the casino? That was dragged out and brought back by the Schuberts, this topical extravaganza. In fact, George... George Gershwin would write for The Passing Show. And, and Gershwin would get, would get his start as well in George White's Scandals, mm-hmm. which would run from 1919 to 1939. But just, so, just to be clear what the real draw of all of these shows were, I, I have a copy of, a, another, of the New York Sun of an advertising section here of various shows. So it says things like The Passing Show of 1915 at the Winter Garden at Broadway and 50th. Mm-hmm. Quote, if you don't talk about this when you get home, then you are a mute. <laughs> Another ad for the Midnight Frolic, quote, more girls than ever before. Then another one, the girl who smiles, mm-hmm. haunting melodies, beautiful girls. Like they're basically I'm all hearing these, lots of girls. All of these ads are focusing on girls. What's very interesting, though, if you move into the corner, is another ad for another show at the Liberty Theater at 42nd and Broadway. D.W. Griffith's A Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. So that is, of course, a movie and a very controversial movie at that. But and a silent one. And a silent film. So we're dealing with two forms of entertainment that would butt heads in this neighborhood for decades. And But it's interesting at this time that you would have these three-dimensional song and dances vying for attention with silent films in black mm-hmm. and white. Mm-hmm. Over there, over there. Send the 
Before I leave this air, I do want to talk about uh, the effect of World War One, as many of these reviews, because they were you know topical, they talked about current events. They would of course incorporate war-themed patriotic numbers. Speaking of George Cohan, in 1917, he debuted. One of almost a, the most patriotic theme of America's entry into World War One, which was over there. And I feel like this is a moment where Broadway melodies and, and Broadway itself is kind of merging with patriotism. Mm-hmm. So, which becomes only more obvious uh, after World War One. And I have to think that the war had a, an impact as well on these European style operettas. Mm-hmm. I mean, during a war or after the war, who wanted to see opera that was uh, taking place in some Viennese court? No, I mean, these things quickly fell away. And it was because of that that the American musical here, soon to be called and referred to as the Broadway musical, would rise even further in dominance in American culture. One more thing I want to add, which was two years later, 1919, it was when Broadway linked itself together in a very interesting way. It was a, a gigantic actor strike. The Actors' Equity Association, which had formed in 1913, were pushing back at these theater managers who were actually treating some of their, their talent quite poorly. And, you know, some of the workaday performers, some of the, the chorus girls were paid quite badly and were not being treated very well. And so had to pay for their own costumes. Didn't, so, yeah. You know, had to pay for their own transportation back to the city after Triumph. So in August of 1919, there was a strike involving thousands of actors who would picket in front of the Broadway theaters. There would even be a parade down Broadway in support of the strike. Eventually, in September, after a month of this strike, which Broadway ground to a halt at this time, they got what they wanted, and it was a huge victory. And it was the first time that you know those outside the theater industry got a window into how difficult it was to put these shows on, how complicated, and how even though they were sort of dispersed in the kinds of things that they did, that they were just like any other industry in New York that had you know suffered the similar kinds of situations. The actors returned to the stage, um, the war was over, and so thus in the 1920s, Broadway had really the beginning of a golden era. The author David Hammack says, quote, By the early 1920s, Times Square provided the largest, brightest stage for the presentation and sale of commercial culture in the United States. So, Right. This was a new era. It was... Well, this is the era that we call the Jazz Age. Mm-hmm. It's the Roaring Twenties. It's a new decade with a new attitude. I would say that it actually kicked off the previous year, 1919, with Prohibition, Mm -hmm. which was an act passed by Congress to prohibit the sale of alcohol in the United States. Rather than drawing up the city, which was the intention of the law, it would lead to the city leading the way um, (laughs) for the nation and the number of speakeasies per, per capita. There would literally be hundreds of speakeasies right here in Midtown Manhattan. These were places where you could go, rap on the door, knock, 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 uh, perhaps give a password, be let in, and there'd be a gay old time inside with booze being served and performances taking place. What's interesting is that it suddenly seemed okay to break the law. In fact, you had classes mixing together. Everybody was intermingling, Mm -hmm. rich and poor. Everybody was on the town and breaking the law. There, there seemed to be some new morality that ruled throughout the 1920s, and it didn't hurt that the stock market was really taking off, skyrocketing. It seemed like people were getting rich all over the place. So people were flush with cash. They were going to many of these speakeasies right. and go before or after a show. 
It sounds great, right? Singing, <laughs> dancing. And it wasn't just people in New York who were following the goings-on about Broadway. People across the country were following these stories. Even with silent films, Broadway was a dominant form of entertainment for the entire country. People across the country, in fact, 50 million people across the country daily, read the gossip column written by one Walter Winchell in New York, and he would just chronicle the goings-on about Broadway. In 1927, in fact, he wrote, Broadway is the big apple, the main stem, the goal of all ambition, the pot of gold at the end of a drab and somewhat colorless rainbow. Carve that in stone. Put, Put it, it on a mug. <laughs> so give me a little sampling here. Would they be more sophisticated than the shows from the 19, the, of the prior decade? Because those were so. silly I mean, shows. They would get a little more sophisticated, but a lot of the shows were still kind of Cinderella stories, rags to riches. Many of the the heroines were actually recently arrived immigrants who would do good and marry rich, um, and they'd be stopping the show to do tap dance numbers and little, you know, comic acts in between. So there were a lot of thinly cobbled together stories that were really just excuses to show girls, song and dance, and comic routines. And would pretty much end in marriages. Or end with the man of their dreams. Yes. A couple notable shows I just wanted to point out in 1919... Irene opened at the Vanderbilt Theater of West 48th Street. This would run for 675 performances, and it was a, get this, story about an Irish girl who immigrated to New York, lived in the Upper West Side, who falls for a Long Island tycoon named Donald. <laughs> there's some hidden identities and a happy ending. I of won't course. give it away. Oh, but there's a happy ending. But there's a happy ending. All right, don't spoil it. I won't tell you what happens Irene. to Irene. A few years later, 1924, Rosemary. It was an <laughs> operetta. They seem to all be named after women. It was the longest-running Broadway musical of the 20s, premiering at the Imperial Theater on West 45th, which is still there today. Mm -hmm. It was a huge success. Now, I, a couple days ago, was at New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Mm -hmm. And upstairs, if you're doing some research, you can you know, have access to original programs and clippings and things. Mm -hmm. So I did get uh, the program for Rosemary. What's interesting, oh. it's notable for being a show that used songs to push the plot forward. Ah, so which is a, a novelty at this time. Which was a novelty, yes. Singing in the songs, not just stopping the show to do a funny number or to, to sing a pretty song that might be popular on Tin Pan Alley, but now there was a song that was written for this show because it was advancing the plot. The sentiment in the song would then change the plot that would proceed. It had it, an effect. Right. It was funny. Interestingly, in that program, because of this, they mm -hmm. refused to print the names of the numbers. So you couldn't see the names of the songs, and there was a little note that said that they weren't going to print the numbers because it would give away the plot of the show. Oh my show. god, it's the, it's the original spoiler alert. Right. So you didn't even know what was wow. going to be sung. Another really important show would be in 1921, Shuffle Along. This decade, of course, saw the explosion of jazz music. And jazz was created by black artists, uh, gave new language and rhythm to the country. Theater composers then in turn took the music and incorporated it into their shows. Shuffle Along was a, a new show by U.B. Blake. Mm -hmm. So he was a vaudeville star and, and who 
intro this was can i say this he was the introduced jazz really to the broadway stage i mean like in a significant way i'm sure he had bubbled up before well and he also introduced broadway to black talent and audiences because seats would be reserved in the theater for black patrons which was a new oh wow and it was huge it was very popular ran for to sold out crowds for two years and it introduced the country to the songs I'm Just Wild About Harry mm. and Love Will Find a Way. But the biggest show of the 1920s and the show that I, the, the show that we've culminated to, the show that we finally arrived at. Mm. Um, the year almost, that we finally arrived yes. at, 1927, mm-hmm. in which 250 shows would open on Broadway in 1927, 50 of which are musicals. Can you imagine if 50 <laughs> musicals opened in a year here? That's crazy. And the biggest show that year was Good News, which is something we completely <laughs> have <laughs> forgotten about. It was like a varsity drag show. <laughs> no news. Right. But the show that opened on December 27th, 1927, at Ziegfeld's new theater was Showboat, a musical by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein II. So it's been a while since I've seen Showboat. Though, Give me the basic plot here. It's based upon a book... Uh, Edna By Ferber, Edna Ferber right? the novel from 1926, and mm-hmm. it follows the story of the lives of the people working and living uh, on the Cotton Blossom, which is a river showboat along the Mississippi River, and the action takes place over the course of four decades, so it's really an epic show. Mm-hmm. It's taken this from past shows. We've we've lived through a lot of epic shows, but this is in a very different style. It's much more serious. It's very serious, and it's extremely important. Uh, it's a breakthrough for musicals in the way that it treated the songs. They really did move the plot forward. They were taken seriously themselves. They were they were constructed to work as a whole piece. So you didn't have any more instances of the story of the show stopping. So that a famous performer could come out and do a song and dance number and then back to the story and then it would stop and do a dance routine. None of that. No needless interruptions. No. The music and the plot and even the dancing that was in it had finally been united into one show. And so when you see it today, it's instantly recognizable as the formula that Broadway shows follow. They still do. Well, unlike virtually every show that we've mentioned, which would be, uh, which seem embarrassing to bring back or would would not would not appeal to a wide audience, this is still played and still circulates, and you can see probably a dozen productions of Showboat right at this very moment. It also had the first racially integrated cast, so both black and 
and white performers were interacting on stage, even having a love story, which was really Scandalous. controversial. Mm-hmm. And some of the hit songs out of it. I mean, we have uh, Old Man River. Right, right away. Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine. Bill, Make Believe. Make Believe, exactly. These are huge hits that are still with us today. They become standard. You talked about Jerome Kern already experimenting with using musical numbers to move plot forward at the Princess Theater. So here he was. He had, he had read Ferber's epic novel and thought that it would make a great musical. He approached Hammerstein to be his lyricist. Ferber, the novelist, wasn't sure that it was a good idea because she was looking around at the Broadway shows and she thought, well, I can't my, do, this won't translate very well. Yeah, my book doesn't work as a Broadway show because of what Broadway shows were. They promised her that they would take it seriously and do something a little bit differently. So she was persuaded, and they realized that they had to take it to the only person. There was only one producer in town who could possibly (laughs) put this on because it was going to be a huge, over-the-top production, and that person was Florence Ziegfeld. So they took it to him in 1926, and he's got this new theater under construction. So they wrote all the numbers in the first act. And so many of these are right there. Old Man River. All those songs, right? Mm -hmm. Can't Help Loving That Man. They take it, they play it for him, and he said, quote, This is the best musical comedy I have ever been fortunate to get a hold of. I'm thrilled to produce it. This show is the opportunity of my life. Wow. I mean, and he would be right. Yeah, well, he was, though, a little bit nervous uh, that his crowds, his audiences, who were used to coming and seeing glamorous women, would be turned off by the subject nature and by the seriousness mm-hmm. of it. It just, ironically, he didn't like the song Old Man River. He thought it was too mm. serious. Well, it's a very serious song. Right. I mean, holding that up next to any of these trifles, it's you know, a, you can't. It's a song that's sorrowful, that tells of problems and of deep troubles, and it holds the whole show together. It's sung throughout the show to show the passing of time and troubles that people take with them. And would, of course, be famously performed by Paul Robeson. Right, who was not in this original production. He was not able to. He was supposed to be in mm. the original, but he was not able to because the show took longer to put together than anticipated. In fact, it was not the debut show uh, for Ziegfeld because it wasn't ready in time. Mm. So it's actually the second show show. that was ever performed at the Ziegfeld Theater. This show was an enormous hit. It ran for 572 performances starring uh, Helen Morgan as Julie and the Paul Robeson character. He'd Mm -hmm. go on to play it in later versions on Broadway in London and also in the film film. was played by Jules Bledsoe. But more importantly, this show, not only being a huge hit in itself, would spawn the idea of these sophisticated shows that could be serious, but had to be cohesive and had to have songs that you could carry away and keep in your head forever. And which featured music that was not purely incidental. So we're going to end the tale of the Broadway musical at that point. Although, in a way, we've just we've just started talking about it right when it got interesting. Not only are musicals growing up mm-hmm. quickly here, but talking movies would debut that same year with the jazz singer in October of 1927. 
And then, of course, the party would screech to an end with the tumbling of the stock market two years later. And the Great Depression. So all of this, of course, is setting up another show in the future. Not not next month, but we'll obviously revisit this topic because we're just getting started. God help us. (laughs) So thank you for for joining us in here on the epic Broadway (laughs) musical. Check us out on the blog, BarryWoodsPodcast.com, with many illustrations, photographs, and even some programs and some advertisements of some of the shows. you think you'll be able to find anything to put on the blog? (laughs) Perhaps. And maybe even a few sound clips and little videos, perhaps, also as well. And also, check us out on Facebook, Bowery Boys, and join Greg on Twitter, at Bowery Boys. We hope that you have a fun, relaxing time this holiday season. And Tom, I want to wish you a happy 2014. Uh, next time we next time we sit together in this studio, it shall be a new year. It shall be. And a new topic. I shall bid adieu, adieu to you and you and you. <laughs> have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.